I'd like to draw your attention once again to the book of Micah. We'll be looking this morning at Micah chapter 5. We are more than halfway through the book of Micah. Micah has seven chapters, and we're going to look this morning at the entirety of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is another one of these oracles of grace that Micah gives us, this message of encouragement that we so need, not just the people of Micah in his day, but we need it as well. So if you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely without error. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely sufficient. Micah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth, then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which, when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots and I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds and I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Thus far, the Lord's word. Let us now ask for his blessing upon it. O oh Lord, we ask that you would open up your word to us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we would see wondrous things in your word. That we would see the Lord Jesus Christ and be drawn to him. 
that we would know his majesty and his greatness. That we would know the comfort that comes from faith in Christ. And so we ask that you would fix our eyes upon Jesus. This we ask in Christ's precious name. Amen. In this book of Micah, as we have seen, the first three chapters are filled with warning. They are warnings about the judgment that is to come because of corruption, because of unfaithful leadership, because of injustice. And so we ask, can there be any hope when things are this bad? How can God's people possibly turn this around? Well, God's answer is twofold. First, they can't. And second, they don't have to. Because you see, God is telling us that he will do a work of salvation and restoration. He will send the true king who will establish a true kingdom. So in this Micah chapter 5, we will see Two things. First, we will see the coming ruler that God brings for his people. Then second, we will see the delivered remnant. The people of God delivered from sin and shame. A remnant to dwell with the ruler in his kingdom forever. The coming ruler and the delivered remnant. Let's start by looking at the coming ruler. And the very first thing we need to do this morning is to look at the setting that God gives to us for the coming of the ruler. This setting is important because we should not forget in the midst of this glorious chapter that Micah is prophesying in a time that is bad. Very bad. It's bad internally. In Judah where there is corruption and injustice. It's bad externally, where there are mighty enemy armies at the gates of the city. And so it's important for us to see that God speaks to his people in the midst of circumstances that he knows are difficult and hard. Are you tempted to think that God doesn't understand your problems? Do you think sometimes that he's unaware of your difficulties? I think often we believe when times get tough that God has forgotten us and that's why times are tough and that we're very far from God. But the Bible says otherwise. The Bible tells us that God knows our challenges and our difficulties and he speaks to us in the midst of them. And so chapter 5 begins with the same kind of picture that we have seen before. You may recall two weeks ago when we looked at Micah chapter 4, we said that there were two comparisons set up by Micah and that there was a third in chapter 5. That is, Micah began with the now of current difficulties and hardship. And then he moved to the then, the distant future of deliverance. We saw this in chapter 4, verse 9. We saw it again in chapter 4, verse 11. And now that troublesome now is back in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. 
And so once again, as he did in chapter 4, verse 9, Micah uses sarcasm to get the attention of Judah. You may recall in verse 9 of the previous chapter, he said, Why are you crying aloud? Where's your king? Of course, the whole point was they had no king. And they were crying aloud because they were in strife and trouble. And so now here, Micah tells them, Go ahead, gather up your troops. Go ahead, defend yourself. You're so important. You're so mighty. Gather up all your forces and deal with this difficulty that's before you. Now, the thing is, even in saying that, there is irony in Micah's language. And the irony comes through because he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. And the word here for troops implies a small band of raiders. It doesn't mean an army. And so it's as if Micah is saying, Yes, of course there's this mighty army outside your gates. But gather up a couple of dozen guys and go ahead and deal with it. Because you're so mighty and able to handle this by yourselves, gather up all your troops. You see, Jerusalem couldn't even raise an army to deal with the threat. There was no way it could defend itself. And so this threat comes from a mighty force from outside. And again we see here this prophetic fulfillment so what Micah is speaking of could be one of two things. He could be speaking of either the siege that was laid by the Assyrians in Micah's day. Or perhaps he's speaking a bit of the future, what we've seen about the attack from Babylon that will come. The only difference between the siege of Jerusalem when the Assyrians were after them and when the Babylonians were after them was that the Babylonians succeeded. It was virtually the same type of conflict. Now, it seems to me that what Micah has in mind here is the attack of the Babylonians. And the reason for that is the second half of verse 1. He says, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so, what will happen as a result of this siege? Will it be deliverance? No, it's going to be disaster. And that's what separates the Assyrians and the Babylonians. God delivered Judah from the Assyrians, but he did not deliver from Babylon. And the worst of all imaginable things happened to the people of God. The king is struck down. The king is beaten back. He is insulted. There could be no greater insult in the world of Micah than to be struck on the cheek. And to be struck on the cheek when you are the king is to say that you have no power, no authority, no ability. He's completely in the hands of the enemy, totally subject to them. Now, we have to note that Micah's prophecy is right yet again. Because 150 years from the time that Micah is writing this, in 587 B.C., Jerusalem will be besieged by the Babylonians. And their king, Zedekiah, will go out from the gate and flee. He will abandon his people and try to escape. But he will be captured. And before his very eyes, his sons will be put to death. And then he will be struck on the face. He will be blinded with his eyes put out and led away to slavery and imprisonment for the rest of his life. Everything 
was lost from the perspective of Judah. Now, this is the context that God wants us to see. When all is lost, when all human hope is gone, when there's nowhere left to turn, God is at work. And now, just like he did in chapter 4, verse 10, and in chapter 4, verse 12, Mike introduces the that, or the but. Look with me at verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. So what we're expecting now, we've been trained by chapter 4, and Micah's use of this now and but language, is we're expecting a surprise. You remember how when the enemies of God's people had gathered themselves together to put what they thought would be the finishing blow on God's people, and they were gathered up all together, but, Micah says, but they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. What they didn't know was that God had brought them there so that he might destroy them. And that's what's happening here. God is now once again springing a surprise. So here, the people of God have been defeated. They have no king. He has abandoned them, and he has been put to shame. But God will act. Now, have you ever noticed that but is one of the most important words in all of the Bible? It helps us to see that God works when we can't. When we think all is lost. Perhaps the best example of that is Paul's writing to the Ephesians in chapter 2. Paul tells us that our situation and our sin is much worse than we think. We're not sick. We're not diseased. We're not weak. We are dead in our trespasses and sin. We are without hope in the world. Alienated from God. But... God, who is rich and mercy, has worked his grace and given his people salvation. You see, God uses this but in the scriptures, and he uses this but in prophecy, and he uses this but in your life. Do not ever forget that God is at work. So how will God challenge the mighty empires of earth? How will he challenge Babylon the Great? It's interesting because verse 2 tells us, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. That's how God challenges the mighty empire. He challenges them with little Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem is a little town in Judah. It's so small that it would not be on the map. That's why... Micah has to give us the region where Bethlehem is so that we can find at least the region on the map. No one notices or cares about Bethlehem. You know, it's interesting. There's a passage in the Bible. It's one of these passages, if you are reading through the Bible through the course of the year, it's one of those passages that slows you down. It's in Joshua chapter 15. And it is a list of name after name after name after name of cities in Judah. More than a hundred names in a row. That's a lot of names. Bethlehem's not found there. It didn't even make the top hundred in Judah. That's how small it is. 
Bethlehem is so small, it's like a one-stop sign town in East Texas. You know, one of those towns that you drive through, and before you know it, you're already past it, because it's so small. This, isn't this exactly the way that God works? To take the insignificant, the humble, the common, and to use it to show his glory? Let me ask you this. Are you missing God's work in your life because you're looking for flashes and big events? Do you see God at work in your life every day in your work? In your everyday life of raising children, studying for tests and exams, making dinner? You need to look for God there because God is at work in the small things. And God's work is always mighty, no matter how small the things are that he uses. So God brings his ruler out of Bethlehem. From you shall come forth, Micah tells us. From out of Bethlehem you shall come forth. And that implies that the family of David has fallen on very hard times. Because David is born in Bethlehem, but as the king of Israel... He lived in Jerusalem. And so what we see here is that David, the one who had the promise of God that his throne would be established forever, is no, his family is no longer on the throne in Jerusalem. The Messiah will not come out of Jerusalem. The throne has been lost. The kingdom has fallen into poverty. Times are bleak. But this king shall come forth for me. Micah says. Now that reminds us of something that we ought never to forget. Often when we think of what God does, even specifically about the Messiah, we think about what that has in perspective to us. What does the Messiah do for us? How does God benefit or bless us? But you see, God says the Messiah comes not for us, but it comes for Him. It comes for His purpose. The Messiah is the ruler that God wants and that he will establish. What God wants matters. And that's what Micah is telling us. And his coming shall be, Micah says, from of old, from ancient days. Now there is a bit of a controversy about this that I will spare you most of. Some will say that this points to the eternal deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the way the language is used, and because of the context, I don't think that's so. Now that doesn't mean at all that Jesus is not eternal, and he's not divine, because there are dozens of other places in the Bible where we can go to find that. We don't need to find it in every possible text. But the language here, from of old, from of ancient days, and especially with the hearkening back to Bethlehem, is Micah taking us back to a time before the current trouble that they are experiencing. It's as if the current trouble doesn't even exist anymore. He goes back to the days of David, the days of Solomon, the days of the king reigning. And in a sense, the current trouble doesn't exist because it doesn't exist for God. God doesn't have to work around present circumstances. God is mighty and powerful. And so 
when we think about this, it points us to the sure promise of God. In spite of what we see, God wants us to look to his promises. They haven't changed. They will not fail. Bethlehem is the birthplace of David. God wants us to see his everlasting covenantal promises to David will come true. Ralph Davis puts it wonderfully as usual. He says, when we think of Bethlehem, we ought not just to think of a little town of Bethlehem, we ought to think of Davidsburg, because it's David's town. It's where David has come from, and God is going to keep his promise to David. Then Micah moves to explain how verse 2 fits in with verse 1. As we first look at this, it seems odd. How does this promise of the ruler who will come fit in with the disaster of verse 1? Before the promise of verse 2 can be realized, believers have to experience the abandonment that Micah speaks of in verse 3. The hard times of verse 1, the abandonment of verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. They're going to be given up, but not forever. For a certain time, there is a limitation to this. Now, why does God tell us this? Wouldn't it be more encouraging for him to just leave this out? To not remind us that the people of God will be given up for a time? Doesn't that dull the force of the prediction of deliverance with a warning about abandonment? Well, I think God wants us not to lose heart. He wants us to have patience. And what better way to have patience in affliction than when God warns us that it's coming and tells us about its end? Let me put it to you this way. Have you ever gotten a shot? If you have gotten a shot, you've probably experienced what I experienced, which is you put out your arm and the nurse tells you it's coming. She says, now it's going to come. And what else does she say? It's going to hurt. Or if she's trying to downplay it, she says, it's going to prick a little. And you're like, no, it's not. It's going to really sting. <laughs> she tells you it's coming, and she tells you. And then when she gives it to you, and then she says, oh, that's over. It's done. And then you can finally relax because you know it's over. The pain is past, right? That bit of warning actually helps you because you know it's, it's not something that's going to go on and on and on. It's just for a moment. So notice how... God describes the Messiah in this way. He describes the Messiah as one who is to come. And even though you are in the midst of trial and struggle, he will deliver you from this. Now, the Messiah comes, and he also brings security. First, he's not an isolated Messiah, but he's united with his people. Look again at verse 3. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And so what we see here is a description of the reunion of God's covenant people. This is a topic that the prophets love to speak about over and over again. And it makes the promise of God's ruler applicable to them and to us. He is their ruler. He is not just a ruler. He is God's people's ruler. Do you see how Jesus identifies with his people? 
Do you see how Jesus identifies with you? He is the Messiah King, but he has brothers. Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers. He is our King. The second thing that we see about the security that the ruler brings is that his rule is marked by shepherding his people in verse 4. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord God, and they shall dwell secure. You see, the Messiah is described as steady and sure. He will stand. He will shepherd in the Lord's strength. And that strength is secured itself. It is secured by the majesty of the Lord. It's very difficult to think of any way to describe the Messiah in a more powerful way. And that makes us secure. Their security rests not in their circumstances, but in the greatness of their king. And then finally, the shepherd... This Messiah holds his people secure because he is their peace. In verse 5. Now notice that Micah does not say that the Messiah brings peace. Although he does. Micah says that he is peace. You see, we have peace because Jesus is peace. He is peace. For his people. Then Micah turns to a picture of what the Messiah's kingdom will look like. He turns from the ruler to the remnant to show what the ruler's kingdom looks like. Now it is intentional that he describe the Messiah first because after all there is no kingdom without this king. But he wants us to see what this glorious messianic age he's been predicting in chapters 4 and 5 will look like. And he does this by using a pattern. He says, it shall be. And then he describes the kingdom. He's decisive in the way he describes this. He's told us that the ruler will be their peace. And now he shows us what that means. They will be a protected people. Now to Micah's listeners, that would mean freedom from fear from war, and from Assyria. And so that's where Micah picks it up in the second part of verse 5. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. So Micah here is moving beyond the current difficulties to a time of deliverance. And He's talking about more than just Assyria here. I think Assyria is symbolic of all of those who would attack God's people. And so we, we gather this from the phrase that Micah uses, the land of Nimrod. And if you were to go back into the book of Genesis and look up Nimrod, you would see that Nimrod is living in, is over the area that Assyria comes from. But that's not the only part of the area. There's a much wider area described in which Nimrod holds sway. Now, we've been in Micah sometimes, so I don't think I need to give you three guesses as to what the other place is besides Assyria over which Nimrod held sway. 
That's right. It's Babylon. You should be used to by now the dual threats of Assyria and Babylon. And you should be used to Micah prophesying deliverance from both. Albeit we know in history by different means. And this becomes then even further emblematic for the people of God now today. I don't know about you, but I don't check the news to find out if Assyria or Babylon is coming on fleet for New York City. I don't worry about that. But there are threats to the church today, aren't there? There are threats to America today. As a matter of fact, there are threats to the church in America today. And so, this word has application for today, for me, and for you. As a part of God's people, we are protected. We are a protected people by the ruler, by the Messiah, by the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. So what will happen when these enemies attack in the time of the ruler? Well, they will be defeated. Micah uses a metaphor here. He says, there will be seven shepherds and eight princes. Now you have to understand, this is a way of saying there will be more than enough leaders to deal with the difficulty. Now, think about that in the context into which Micah is speaking. When the king of Israel has been defeated, blinded, dragged off to prison. It's the ruler, it's the Messiah that will deliver. He makes this very clear. He shall deliver in verse 6. The shepherds are there, they're leading, but it is the Messiah who will deliver. And this peace that the Messiah brings is one of complete victory. It's what we have to look forward to in the kingdom of Jesus. Next, Micah shows how the remnant that has been delivered will flourish in the ruler's kingdom, and it will be a prominent people. It's not just a protected people, it's a prominent people. The people of God will affect the world around them. They are not isolated, they are not inwardly focused. This is a word that we need to hear. Because we are far too often tempted to think about the church of Jesus Christ as a small, beleaguered band of the faithful who have no influence on others around us, who cannot speak into our culture, who have no ability to lead any movement. We just are hoping to hang on until Jesus comes back. There are some theologians that actually think that's a good thing that the worse things get, the better it is, because somehow that means Jesus is closer to coming back. Micah doesn't see that here. Micah sees God's people as being prominent in the world. They are in verse 7 and verse 8, in the midst of many people. And again in verse 8, they are found among the nations. They're not hiding in a corner. They're not in the dark somewhere. They're out in the midst of the world. Now, how are God's people prominent? This is interesting, because Micah uses two pictures of the prominence of the people of God, and they are very different. We might even consider them a paradox. First, Micah says that they will be like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, in verse 7. Now, the picture here is one of refreshing rain. Now, when I say rain, do not think of that hard, driving, stormy rain. 
I know that many of you have come to dislike that kind of rain. Because for that, it conjures up images of flooding, danger, destruction, and loss. That's not what's being described here. It's kind of a, a drizzling from the sky. You might picture yourself out working in the yard in the heat. And then it starts to drizzle around you. And you're not upset because it's raining. You are rejoicing. Because it cools you off. But it, it doesn't shower upon you so much that it makes you soak and you have to run inside. It's just refreshing. Or think about that kind of a rain and walking outside in the morning. Smelling the grass. Taking in a big lungful. Is there any better air than that in the morning? This is the kind of rain that makes the grass smell wonderful. That brings refreshment that conjures up images of peace and joy. But there's a second way that Micah describes God's people among the nations. We see it in verse 8. They are like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. Now this is a very different image. It is of a powerful, unstoppable force. The lion ravages. There's no one to deliver. Imagine a lion among a flock of sheep. There'd be no contest. The lion could do whatever it wishes. Now, why would Micah use these images? How do these two images possibly go together of refreshing light rain and a roaring lion? How do they describe the same thing, the people of God? Well, they're a reminder of how the church relates to the world around it. The church relates to the world in two ways. Blessing and judgment. As the church brings the gospel to the world, it always has one of two effects. It either has the effect of life or of death. Of mercy or of judgment. Paul puts it this way. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. You see, the people of God always have one of those two effects. Now, this should give us confidence and hope. The world will fare according to how they hear the message of the gospel. And in either event, the gospel, the kingdom, the ruler, and his remnant will be completely victorious. Finally, the last way in which Micah describes the people of God is as a pure people. He does this in verse 10, and he does it again with an it shall be. Now, I know you don't see it in our translation, but the Hebrew is there. More literally, it would be translated, and it shall be that in that day, and that's just a bit cumbersome English, so they, the translators have kept the thought pattern but condensed it some, but trust me, Micah's pattern is there. It shall be in that day, declares the Lord, that I will cut off your horses, and I will cut off your cities, and I will cut off your sorceries, and I will cut off your carved images, and I will... Cut off your pillars from among you, and I will root out your Asherah images from among you. What the Lord is describing here is 
purifying his people. Look above verse 10 and verse 9. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and your enemies shall be cut off. God is going to cut off the enemies of Judah from Judah. And then it's as if he takes that exact same word and he uses it as a hammer to pound into them that they are not to be like those enemies. He says it over and over again. I'm going to cut off your enemies, but I'm going to cut off your idolatry. I'm going to cut off your trust in chariots. I'm going to cut off your trust in fortifications. I'm going to cut off your trust in Asherah. I'm going to purify you. I'm going to prune you, to use Jesus' language in John 15. He takes a verb that he used to describe judgment on the world, and he uses it to describe the pruning process of his people. What's happening here is the Lord is going to take away everything from his people that would cause them to turn away from him. First, he does away with their reliance on their resources, specifically their military might in verses 10 and 11, because Judah was tempted to trust in their ability to defend itself. The offensive weapons of verse 10, the, the chariots, the horses, the defensive weapons of verse 11, the cities, the strongholds. He tells them not to trust in that, but to trust in him. If we think about it, this is human nature. When you are afraid of a terroristic attack, is the first thing that comes to your mind that God loves you and will care for you and will protect you? Or is it, you know, those seals are tough. You know, we have stealth bombers, aircraft carriers, battleships, the best tank in the world, the best trained army in the world. You see, we tend to trust in our resources that we can see and we can manipulate. And God strips that away from his people. An example of this that we see in the scriptures is the story of Gideon. You remember that God told him to go off to battle, and he took with him 22,000 men. And God kept saying over and over again, no, that's too many. Cut that down. No, that's too many. Cut that down. And eventually, Gideon ended up with 300 men. And he was victorious because God provided the victory not swords and spears. The second thing that God does away with here is their idolatry. He does away with their relying on other gods. He attacks all false religions that are designed to provide security and contentment outside of God. And so he says he will do away, for example, with sorcery. Now what's sorcery? Sorcery's purpose is to control the future. It's to provide security by controlling the future. Now, you may not try incantations, but are you trying to control the future through your investments? Or through circumstances? And then he says he will do away with fortune-telling. Now, fortune-telling doesn't control the future, but it's knowing the future so that you can manipulate things ahead of time. And again, I don't know whether you are using tarot cards or fortune-telling, but are you trying to look at trends? Are you relying upon polling? Are you relying upon future expressions in order to control your life? In both instances, the purpose was to have resources outside of God to be secure. 
And so God will do away with all of this, and he will do away with all of their idols, with their images, with their pillars, with their Asherah poles. In all of this, God is purifying his people. He is making them fit for the blessings he has for them. In conclusion, we often do not realize that we are our own worst enemy. How we continually put things before God. We put our desires before our own good. But a day is coming, Micah says, when a ruler who will return, who will put all things right. He will come to establish his kingdom and provide security for his people. And he will set them apart from all others. That ruler is Jesus. He has come from the humblest of places, from Bethlehem. He came not as a rich man, nor as a king, but as a servant. He's come to redeem for himself a people. And he's coming again to rule and to reign over them. Do you know this Jesus? Is he making you more and more into his image? Do you long to be numbered among his people? You can be, by faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done. There is no one like Jesus. There is no hope except Jesus. Embrace him. Embrace him now.